Hey everyone, I want to invite you to check out our brand new online learning platform, Windows into the Bible University. Windows into the Bible University offers a full curriculum that will help you understand how to read the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. It provides efficient and affordable biblical education and is revolutionizing how we study the Bible by helping you to feel confident in your ability to understand and interpret the scripture. Windows into the Bible University offers monthly and annual subscriptions. Please check us out and note that going to the website, you can actually access a free course on the Lord's Prayer. That's Windows into the Bible University, WITBUniversity.com, revolutionizing Bible reading so that you can be confident in your ability to understand and interpret the Bible. You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Do you ever find yourself confused when you read the Bible? Do you struggle to find relevance in what it is you're reading? Do you feel like you're missing out on something that the author intended for you to get? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret and understand the Bible? I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. For over 23 years, I've been leading study experiences to the lands of the Bible, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. And when it comes to touring the land of Israel, one of the most visited sites, not only by Christian pilgrims and and, and Christian students, but by Jewish travelers as well, is the palace fortress of Masada, located on the shores of the Dead Sea. And I get the question from time to time from pastors or other people who are traveling with me, why are we here? It's never mentioned in the, in the Bible. What does Masada have to teach us about the world of the Bible? And the answer is actually quite a lot. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the story of Masada, let me give it to you briefly. First of all, our only source for knowing the end of Masada is the Jewish historian of the first century, Josephus Flavius. And he actually only tells the story in one place in his work on the Jewish war. Now, 
Masada was a palace fortress built by Herod the Great. It's one of several that he builds, along with places like Herodium outside of Bethlehem, Makerus, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea. But Masada is a bit south of Engedi. It overlooks not only the Dead Sea, but some travel routes that went through the area. And, of course, Engedi was where Herod manufactured balsam. Now, balsam is not what we think of today. It was a perfume. But it was the most expensive perfume in the Roman Empire. It was the cash crop of Herod's kingdom. And so Masada's protecting that. When the first Jewish revolt breaks out, one of the early factions that enters into Jerusalem, its leader was named Menachem. The group was what Josephus called the Sicarii because they carried these daggers hidden under their coats that they used to then enter into crowds and strike out against Roman sympathizers or Romans. According to Josephus, the first person killed by one of the Sicarii was high priest in Jerusalem. Anyway, the Sicarii ride into Jerusalem at the beginning of the revolt, led by Menachem, their leader. He's dressed up like a king. The other Jewish factions in Jerusalem don't really like it. They kill him, and his followers go off to Masada. They kick out the Roman garrison that's on Masada, and that's where they're going to hang out the rest of the revolt. And in fact, Josephus hardly mentions this group within the rest of his story of the revolt. These are not the defenders of Jerusalem when Jerusalem falls and the temple's destroyed. In fact, about the only other time that Josephus mentions them is after the destruction of the temple, about two years before the fall of Masada, on Passover, these Jews, these Sicarii, slaughter the Jewish community at En Gedi. Now, the story of Masada, the fall of Masada, as Josephus tells it, is that the 10th Roman legion, led by the general Flavius Silva, marches to Masada, surrounds Masada, on its western side builds up a siege ramp. The defenders of Masada refuse to fire on those building the ramp because these are the prisoners of war from Jerusalem, their fellow Jews. And eventually they decide, well, we've got to, or else the Romans are going to get all the way up here. But by that time, the ramp has been built high enough that the Roman archers and ballista can cover the continuation of the building. It takes about three months to build the ramp. The Jewish rebels are not idle. They build an earthen wall behind the stone wall and buttress it with a wooden wall with the idea that this earthen wall will absorb the blows of the battering ram. The Romans come to the top of the ramp. They see this, and then sure enough, the earthen wall is effective in absorbing the blows, but the Roman archer's light set fire to the wooden wall, but then the winds change. And instead of blowing from west to east, they begin to blow east to west. 
and the fire is blowing back up against the Romans and the Jewish rebels. Aha! God is going to fight for us. But the winds change again. And the leader of the Jewish rebels, a man by the name of Eleazar ben Yair, gathers his leaders together and basically gives a speech that runs something like this. It's better that we die freemen than at the hands of our enemies. It's better that our sons die at our hands than serve as slaves on the Roman galleys. It is better that our wives and our daughters die at our hands than have to serve as temple prostitutes. So each man went back to his house, killed his family, and then the leaders go around and kill the head of each household, and then they enter into a suicide pact where 11 kills 12, 10 kills 11, all the way down to the last person falls on his sword. That's the story that Josephus tells of Masada. Of course, the $10 million question is, is if everybody killed themselves, and there's about a thousand people on top, how does he ever know what was done, what was said? Well, Josephus has thought about that. He says that the Romans captured a couple of women and some children that were hiding out in one of the cisterns of Masada, and this becomes the source of his story. Seems pretty straightforward, pretty easy to understand. And so when the state of Israel was in the process of being established, 1948, and you had the youth movement movements beginning to rediscover Masada, you actually had, going back to the 1920s, a famous Hebrew poem that said, Masada shall not fall again. After the War of Independence, the area of the old city of Jerusalem where the Western Wall was, was actually in the Kingdom of Jordan. It was outside where Jews could not go to it. So Masada became a national symbol for the state of Israel. Remember that just a few years before, Jews all through Europe had gotten in onto cattle cars on their way to death camps. And Masada represented the Jews who fought back. And ultimately, even when faced with defeat, grabbed defeat from their enemies by taking their own lives. So when Masada is going to be excavated in the early 60s by a professor, Yigal Yadin, Yadin sits on top of Masada and literally is reading Josephus like he's gospel. Now, I will say this, a number of historians and archaeologists have raised questions about the plausibility of Josephus's tale. I would tend to agree with them, but this isn't the forum to get into that right now. But I want to draw your attention to an aspect of Josephus's tale that is often overlooked that actually sheds light on the Gospels and on the spiritual world of the New Testament. When Josephus writes his Jewish war, he writes it in the style of the Greek historian Thucydides. Thucydides, you'll remember, frankly, Thucydides should be called the father of history, not Herodotus, because Thucydides is the first one who is trying to take human event and string it together in a way to make sense. Herodotus includes a lot of myth and fable and, and, and so forth. 
But Thucydides, in his introduction to the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta, says that the speeches that are given herein are as they were or as they should have been. In other words, Thucydides is telling you that he's going to use the speeches in his work for his own mouthpiece. And Josephus writes his Jewish war in the same style. Now, before we all lose our minds here, you know, thinking then what good is Josephus as a source if he's, you know, using these speeches and how can we trust Josephus and on? You can trust Josephus. But let me remind you, every year in the United States, when we watch the President State of the Union, and I don't care if you're a red state, blue state, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, we watch the State of the Union, and for the next 24 hours, what are the talking heads doing? They're telling us what we heard, but they're telling us how they think we should hear it. We do the same thing today. Remember, history is man's reflection on his past, and therefore it always comes through a human lens. Now, Josephus writes in the style of Thucydides in his Jewish war. And when Josephus writes, he doesn't end his story with the fall of Jerusalem. He doesn't end his story even with the fall of Masada. He actually ends his story talking about the anti-Jewish riots that break out in Syria and in Egypt as a result of the revolt. One of the agenda that Josephus is writing his Jewish war for is to say, listen, not all Jews are revolting. Because as a result of the Jewish revolt, there were large-scale anti-Jewish policies that are sweeping through the Roman Empire. And they start all the way from the emperor himself, Vespasian. You have the establishment of what's called the Fiscus Judaicus, the Jewish tax, that was assessed on all Jews, male and female, and even children. We'll talk about that in a future episode. But there's large-scale anti-Jewish sentiment as a result of the revolt. And part of Josephus's purpose is to say, hey, we're not all bad. Now, never mind the fact that I was once a general of those who fought against Rome, but let's not get confused with the facts here. And one of the things he's trying to do is not only to grapple within himself about the, the travesty, if you will, of the loss of the temple and Jerusalem, of Jew fighting against Jew and spilling Jewish blood. But he's also trying to redeem the image of Judaism within the Roman Empire. One of the things that Rome appreciates is the noble death. And so we see this theme throughout Josephus' writings, this idea of the noble death, that instead of succumbing And submitting to slavery, you take your own life. Now, what everybody everybody knows, in fact, if you go to Masada and you watch the, the little video that's done there, everybody knows the speech of Elazar Ben Yair that I just mentioned to you. But what they don't know is that there's actually a second speech that's recorded by Josephus. Now, remember what I said, he's writing in the style of Thucydides. So it's not necessarily that he's taking stenography 
from Elazar ben Yair, the head of the Jewish rebels on Masada. But rather, this is Josephus' mouth. And here is a portion of that speech. But did we hope that we alone of all the Jewish nation would survive and preserve our freedom as persons guiltless towards God and without a hand in the crime? For it was not of their own accord that those flames which were driving against the enemy turned back upon the wall constructed by us. No, all this betokens wrath at the many wrongs which we madly dared to inflict upon our countrymen. The penalty for those crimes let us pay not to our bitterest foes, the Romans, but to God through the act of our own hands. Now, this gets really interesting. Elazar ben Yair's second speech is actually saying, let us, did we think that we were going to get away with all of this? We are now being punished for the crimes that we committed against our fellow countrymen. What crimes is he talking about? Well, within Josephus's text, the only other place where this group has committed atrocities against fellow Jews is the slaughtering of the Jewish community at Engedi, which happened, when did I say? On Passover. Guess when Masada falls, according to Josephus? On Passover. That is too coincidental. That is intentional. And what is Josephus saying? Let us, by taking our own lives, pay the penalty for the crimes that we committed, not to the Romans, but to God by taking our own life. Now, Josephus is giving witness, and he does in another place. There's a, there's a story he tells about a man by the name of Simon. He's from Beit Shan. And initially when the revolt breaks out, Simon remains out of the revolt. In fact, he even fights against his fellow Jews. But as the revolt wears on, the Gentiles of Beit Shan turn against the Jewish population. And what happens is when Simon perceives the attack coming against the Jews by the Gentiles, Josephus says this, but now this slaughter of his kin met with its due penalty. For when the people of Beit Shan had surrounded the grove and were shooting down its occupants, this is talking about this Gentile outbreak against the Jews, with their javelins, he, talking about Simon now, drew his sword, and then instead of rushing upon one of the enemy, he exclaimed in a tone of deep emotion, justly am I punished for my crimes, men of Scythopolis. That's the, the, the Greek name for Beit Shan. Us who have been guilty of the last degree of impiety towards our own people, let us, I say, die as cursed wretches by our own hands. This God grant shall be at once the fit retribution for my foul crime and the testimony to my courage. What's his crime? He's fought against Jews. He's killed Jews. Let me ask you this question. Where do we hear in the New Testament of a Jew who plays a role in the death of another Jew 
And when he comes to the realization of his crimes, takes his own life. Of course, I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. We read in Matthew 27, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that he, Jesus, was condemned. Now understand that the unpardonable sin within ancient Judaism is to play the role of the betrayer, to play a role in handing over your fellow Jew into the hand of the non-Jew, resulting in that Jew's death. The term in Judaism, the term in Hebrew, is moser. The Greek word that we find used is paradidomi, and it reflects the Hebrew limsor, to betray, to turn over. Notice when Judas repents, when Jesus is condemned by Pilate. He repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. Notice, in both accounts of Simon and the defenders of Masada, before they take their own lives, there's a confession of their guilt. Of course, the chief priest says, what is this to us? See to it yourselves. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went out and hanged himself, strangled himself. I'm not going to take time today to get into it, but he's actually trying to inflict a death penalty upon himself that parallels what Jesus is experiencing. I can't sit here and tell you, and, and again, I don't think that the story of the fall of Masada, there was definitely a siege of Masada and so forth. I, I don't think it happened as cleanly as Josephus makes it out. But Josephus, in these statements of Eleazar ben Yair with the, the fall of Masada and with Simon and Beit Shan is giving witness to this theological idea within ancient Judaism that says that a person who has committed a crime, especially in handing over or betraying his fellow Jew, that if that person will acknowledge his crime and submit to death, even at the death of his own hands, that that's the pathway forward for his atonement. Now, whenever I talk about this, people always ask me, well, did it work? I don't know. I'm not God. That's way above my pay grade. But at least what this shows us is what is in the cultural, spiritual mindset of Judas. We hear in the Mishnah, this early rabbinic text, for one that is about to die, he confesses. Everyone who confesses has a place in the world to come, but if he does not know how to confess, they're going to teach him saying, let my death atone for my sins. Now, what does that sound like? Remember the second thief on the cross in Luke? What does he say? We are justly being punished for the crimes that we have committed. It's exactly what we have in this language from Mishnah. When we begin to sensitize ourselves to the world of ancient Judaism, we see that even a place like Masada, which is never mentioned in the Gospels, the story of Masada has not happened 
in the time period covered by the Gospels or the Book of Acts. Yet when we begin to pay attention to the evidence that these sources give us of the spiritual worldview that existed within ancient Judaism, we find that the story of Masada actually has direct bearing on the mindset of Judas Iscariot and the thief that hung on the cross next to Jesus. Again, I don't know if Masada happened the way Josephus writes about it. I personally think probably not, but it doesn't matter. Whether it did or didn't, what Josephus puts on the lips of these individuals reflects the same attitude that we see being reflected by Judas and the thief on the cross in the Gospels. These little windows into the world of the Bible are everywhere within these ancient sources. Once we begin to learn to read them and understand them properly. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. You've been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>